Welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Hemonk, an open access video journal that provides healthcare professionals with trusted and up-to-date information in Hemonk through innovative digital media. Today, we're joined by Amir Zaidan, who leads an exciting discussion on the treatment and management of myelodysplastic syndromes, including the challenges faced in clinical trial participation, clinical endpoints and drug approvals, as well as the latest data in MDS. Hello, my name is Amr Zaidan. Uh, I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University and the director of early uh, of hematology early therapeutics research. And it's a pleasure here to be with you in the first episode of this series called MDS Talks uh, with VG Hem Honk, in which we are talking about MDS, the latest developments, as well as many issues that pertain to MDS uh, from clinical trial design from latest developments in the understanding of the disease and uh, genetic changes, as well as patient uh, perspective and uh, different studies that apply uh, to the disease. It's a pleasure to have such a great group with me in this uh, first iteration of this uh, series. So I, today I have with me Amy Desern, who's uh, an associate professor of oncology and medicine at Johns Hopkins University. I have uh, Dr. Michael Savona, who is a professor of medicine and cancer biology and the acting chief of hematology at uh, Vanderbilt University. I have Dr. Mikhail Sikres, who is a professor of medicine at Cleveland Clinic and the director of leukemia section over there, and soon to be the chief of uh, division of hematology as a Sylvester Cancer Center in the University of Miami. Congratulations, Mikhail. And uh, lastly, we have, uh, last, last and not least for sure, we have uh, David Stinsma, who's uh, an associate professor and uh, Edward Evans Chair of Medicine at the Diana Farber Cancer Institute. Thank you so much all for being with me today, and it's a pleasure to have all of you. So maybe I can start with with uh, with David. Um, David, in, in MDS, I think um, historically we had a lot of issues with clinical trial participation, and this has, uh, I think, somewhat impeded the uh, development and introduction of new therapies. Um, you and uh, several, uh, I think, investigators uh, have uh, looked at issues related to clinical trial participation within the MDS, uh, specifically within the MDS world. So I was hoping you can kick this for us by um, talking about some of those uh, main points that, that you have concluded from, from your work. Yes, I think that's a good place to start, Amir, because we're not going to get any better at treatments for MDS unless we do clinical studies and patients enroll on them. And, you know, it, it is hard to do MDS clinical studies. Many of the patients are older. Some of them have had other cancers and uh, may have complications from treatment of those or may even have uh, active disease. Uh, you know, older patients often don't travel very well or have comorbid conditions that make them ineligible for trials. And just in general, there, there aren't enough uh, studies uh, out there uh, for patients with MDS, particularly in smaller centers and in the, in the community where most patients are seen. Uh, we actually did an analysis grouping data from uh, five of the centers that care for a lot of patients with uh, MDS. And uh, only a, a little bit over 20% went on an interventional uh, trial, uh, even at those major centers. And 
the patients that did go on trial, they were tended to be living a little closer to the center. They, they tended to be from wealthier zip codes, uh, surrogate for income. So, you know, there, there are certainly biases in who goes on, on study. And one last thing I'll say is um, often the eligibility criteria in these studies are way too strict, much stricter than they need to be. And Mikhail um, has written about this. And actually, he and his colleagues at Cleveland Clinic have some data about things like minor LFT abnormalities or, um, you know, exclusions for therapy-related disease that are, that are really not necessary and I think um, are a barrier. So uh, it is an important uh, problem that we need to address as a community. So maybe taking it from this point, like Mikhail, maybe can we expand more on what do you think are some of the ways to try to modify these trials in a way that would allow more participation? I, I think it's quite um, one of the first things that I was surprised when, when I saw that report in cancer was even in big centers, uh, which are deeply invested in clinical research, that the participation rate remains, remains low. Yeah, I think there are a couple of... Um issues with it, Amar, and, and as, as David so eloquently already said. The uh, first is that the eligibility criteria are overly stringent to enroll, particularly typical patients we see with myelodysplastic syndromes. These folks are older. The median age of diagnosis is 70 or 71 years. Um, in states like Ohio, they have a lot of comorbidities. So it's the rare patient I see who doesn't have heart disease or some degree of obesity or diabetes. And um, we're constructing trials with an endpoint of getting a drug approved, uh, which is an endpoint that's defined by the sponsors of those trials. But that's not the endpoint we care about. The endpoint we care about is getting our patients better. And I think we've uh, been complacent in allowing trials to be designed for a perfect population through a regulatory lens, as opposed to the population we have to sit three feet away from every day and talk about whether or not a treatment is gonna work for them. So um, some of the areas in which the eligibility criteria are too rigorous, um, we actually uh, did a study looking at 100 randomized trials in hematologic malignancies published over a five-year period and found that the eligibility criteria had little to nothing to do with known adverse events from drugs, from earlier phase trials, nor realized events on those trials, uh, with the exception of exclusion criteria for neurologic toxicities. So these included liver, kidney, and cardiac abnormalities. We then took this to the next step where we looked at studies that were conducted through the NCI Southwest Oncology Group over a 10-year period in leukemia. Um, there were a total of about 2,500 patients who were enrolled onto those trials. And a posteriori, so after the fact, it was found that some of those patients had been ineligible for those trials, but people didn't know it um, because the trials weren't audited until later on. Well, we looked at those ineligible patients who once again comprised about 10% of patients enrolled on those trials and found that they had the same rates of serious adverse events as patients who were eligible and the same remission rates as patients who were eligible. In other words, it was proof principle that the eligibility criteria were overly stringent. Now, a lot of those patients would have been found to be ineligible really for timing issues. So for example, maybe a study required they have a bone marrow biopsy within two weeks of enrollment and they had a bone marrow biopsy 
three weeks from enrollment, therefore should have been ineligible. And these are nonsense criteria that we can modify to be overly inclusive of patients uh, in those trials so that the trials better reflect uh, the patients we're going to have to face one day and think about offering a drug once it's approved. Yeah, those are great points. Amy, um, maybe I'll take it to uh, another dimension, like both of us trained at Hopkins, and I think one of the things that struck me um, during my time there when we were talking to patients about clinical trials is some degree of uh, some maybe distrust of the system that comes to some of the history of how clinical trials or clinical research in general has been uh, you know, done in, in, in countries, uh, including the U.S., and um, maybe with uh, some of the minority populations, this, these issues have been more, um, I think, of concern and the issue that patients bring up often about not wanting to be a guinea pig. Um, so what do you typically do, like, when you have those kind of difficulties in, in talking to the patient to kind of um, make the, the trial uh, appear um, more reasonable to them that that's something that they should really consider? So it is a complicated question, and you're right, both in Baltimore and in other parts of the U.S. and all over the world, it is an opportunity, as opposed to a difficulty, to really ensure that we provide truly informed consent if we're trying to convey to a patient that it's quite important that we move them beyond the current standardly available therapies to try and give them the best opportunity to have a better outcome with their disease. And I find that this is, it is something I welcome the opportunity to do. It takes a lot of time. And the uh, term guinea pig does come up in my clinic visits more than I would have ever anticipated when I was in medical school. And I really think that the onus is on the provider as a clinical investigator, or even the principal investigator of the trial, or just a co-investigator, to really make sure that we understand the mechanism of drug why it makes sense in this individual human being, and then what the alternatives are uh, for that particular patient's therapy. Because there really are some patients where I'm not comfortable as their doctor to offer them a randomized trial where they could receive placebo because I think that there might be something else better out there. And so there are some patients where we have to just really weigh the risks and benefits of standard therapies and how likely they are to work. And then for the investigational product, how toxic it might be and if that fits with the patient's goals for the treatment of their particular disease. Yeah, and those are, those are great points. And maybe, Michael, uh, I think another dimension for the clinical trial participation is, especially in states where um, uh, they are not as densely populated, where many of the patients live far from from the big center and they have to drive one or two hours basically to come um, to you to, to do a clinical trial. What are some of the, I think, uh, uh, some of the challenges that you foresee uh, and how, how do you try to work with patients to try to um, make some trial options available for them that they can participate even if they, if they live far from you? Well, uh, Amr, I mean, I'm an optimist. So, uh, you know, one, the flip side, the silver lining of there being such uh, a lack of good therapies for MDS is that there's a lot of opportunity. Um, there's a lot of opportunity in clinical trials to test new mechanisms of action, which we're doing and have made progress in the last several years, but also finding ways to deliver the things that we know work to patients in a more efficient and more effective manner. Um, you know, here in the South and, and in Tennessee, uh, we have patients who not dive, 
not just an hour, but you know, three, four, up to six, eight hours uh, to come into a major medical center. Uh, and sometimes their closest oncology office is as much as an hour and a half to two hours away. In those cases, coming to sit in an infusion chair and receiving IV chemotherapy for consecutive days on end, for example, is not appealing. Uh, so recently, uh, we were involved in, in developing a uh, oral analog of the cytobine, which is a common DNA methyltransferase inhibitor used in the standard care in, in MDS. Uh, and uh, there's an oral analog given with a drug called sedaziuridine. And sedaziuridine blocks cytidine deaminase, which is a key enzyme in the gut and the liver um, that breaks down the cytobine. So oral decitabine alone, by the time it gets to the bloodstream, is not a bioequivalent drug. Uh, but given with sedaziuridine, uh, the bioequivalents could be matched. And through a series of you know, pharmacokinetic-driven experiments, we're able to show that basically sedaziuridine and, and decitabine in a fixed-dose combination of 35 milligrams, milligrams of decitabine and 100 milligrams of sedaziuridine, it's really the same as IV decitabine. So now patients can be given a, uh, a, a uh, see the doctor on, on day one, and instead of coming back days one through five every day for parenteral administration of decidabine, they can get their pills and go home. So, you know, it's not, a, it's not as exciting as far as a novel mechanism of action, but it's very important for improving quality of life. This is not a disease that we're able to cure the vast majority of patients with allogeneic stem cell transplant. So improving quality of life and adding good years, not just years for patients is really uh, the motivation behind a lot of these types of developments. Yeah, and that actually brings me to the next topic I wanted to discuss since you brought up the oral decitabine and, and this, you know, phase three, the certain uh, trial. And I think the novel way of uh, doing um, the, the endpoint, I think uh, Mikhail touched a little bit on, on the subject of the endpoints of the trial. And this phase three trial looked at the pharmacokinetic equivalence between the oral and the IV versions of, of decitabine. Um, so I think we, we historically had this disconnection in, in, uh, in MDS between the short-term endpoints such as um, hematologic improvements or complete response and the long-term outcomes because they don't always correlate. We don't have that same degree of correlation between progression-free survival and overall survival that's seen in some solid tumors. And I wonder from both a patient perspective as well as a regulatory perspective, maybe I can go back to Mikhail and David, especially since both of them sat on the ODAC, uh, um, helping the FDA to decide on on some of those drugs. And, you know, we are probably things are changing these days in terms of how drugs are being more uh, approved, approved somewhat faster. But when you look at the current endpoints, many of the trials for MDS are being uh, uh, are, are using CR as an endpoint. So what, what's, what's our perspective on, on, on this? Uh, maybe I can start with David and then go to Mikhail. At the end of the day, what matters most to patients is living longer and living better. So, you know, better quality of life, patient-reported outcomes, minimal burden, such as transfusions, but then uh, living longer. Um, and insofar as their blood counts uh, correlate with those things or decrease in blast correlate with those things, uh, then those are beneficial uh, endpoints. I think, you know, things like hematologic improvement, while they can be important, for instance, if they, you know, decrease the patient's transfusion needs or um, help them have more energy, um, 
or bleed less uh, can be meaningful, but minor improvements in counts really probably aren't that uh, helpful for, for patients. What is a CR worth? Well, I think if it's a true CR, decreased blasts and increased um, counts, uh, then you know that does seem to correlate with longer survival. Um, one always has to be careful about assessing survival based on response because it can be confounded unless you do a proper landmark analysis. People still do these things, and we've known about this since Anderson's paper in the JCO in 1983 that, you know, that was a problematic uh, way of doing things. Marrow CR, I think we're not as sure that that's a meaningful endpoint. You know, if the blasts go down, but there's no count recovery, is that really helpful for the patient? And for instance, rigocertib is a drug that quite commonly decreases the blasts, uh, but now we have two negative studies with rigocertib against um, conventional care and uh, so that doesn't seem to translate into, you know, improved survival. Um, so I think we're, we are seeing more use of these surrogate endpoints. And they're, they're not super well validated. I will say this is happening across disease types. So it's not specific uh, to MDS that we're seeing things approved on PFS endpoints or, or other uh, surrogate markers. Um, you know, when, when we were on ODAC together, I was, I was like the good cop and Mikhail was like the bad cop uh, who would, you know, do the real in interrogation. And, and I'd try to give the guys a way out and, uh, you know, but Mikhail would go for the jugular. So I'm curious to see what he would say. Well, I, I want to point out that with um, Anderson's article in 1983, David actually read that at age 12 <laughs> when it first came out while I was wasting my time being terrified of talking to girls. <laughs> so, you know, I, I still struggle with where we're going with regulatory endpoints and how we're designing trials in myelodysplastic syndrome, and I don't think I have the right answer. Um, I joke with people, I wish I had a home chemistry kit because the rate at which FDA is approving drugs based on interim markers of clinical benefit or markers that may not even be interim markers of clinical benefit, um, I could get something approved pretty quickly. The, the drugs that we've had approved for MDS this year are okay. Um, I think as, as Michael alluded to, and he, is, you know, he was instrumental in getting one of those drugs approved, they're, uh, they're not exciting nor game changers. They're, there's something else to do. And we're still waiting for that game changer. And one of the, the challenges with doing it is that um, I think we're lackadaisical about enrolling patients onto clinical trials. And I think the way we've structured clinical trials to exclude a lot of the patients who are a target population has really hurt us over time. And, I, and there are two lines of argument with this, Amr. One is that we should wait until we have a great study with a clinically meaningful endpoint like survival or some improvement in patient reported outcomes, which is incredibly hard to show in clinical trials, and we shouldn't budge until we get that trial. Another approach, one that Ken Anderson has actually promoted in myeloma, is you keep approving these drugs that aren't that excited with little tiny incremental benefits, and one day you'll be like multiple myeloma where patients are all of a sudden living for years because of those incremental benefits. As David alluded to, I'm in the first camp where I think we should wait for studies with meaningful endpoints, because until then, we're hawking false hope to our patients instead of true hope and true, prog true progress in their disease. But I readily admit that um, there are other ways of thinking about drug approval. So, Michael and Amy, I'll, I'll go 
to you with, with this question. So, you know, um, David and Mikhail actually wrote one of my favorite uh, editorials that I quote often. The, they call it the Boulevard of Broken Dreams about uh, drug development for AML and how many drugs, uh, you know, uh, were basically being disapproved. And, you know, I, I suspect and I think they would probably agree with me that if that decided to be in trial that um, was not approved back in 2012, this, if this was brought in front of the FDA now, that might be a different consideration. And I wonder, are we going into a direction where we are really having some major breakthrough in our drugs for MDS, or is it that uh, the, the um, approval considerations have changed? So uh, in terms of what Mikhail was talking about, uh, approving a number of drugs that have small incremental benefits, but overall can change the natural history of disease versus uh, trying to go after drugs that are major um, kind of game changers in how we manage those patients. What, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, maybe you start with Michael and go to Amy. Oh, I was going to say ladies first, but I, I, I'll jump at the bits as you ask me. Uh, I, I think, you know, Mikel is right. There's a sacrifice to be made um, if, the, if the approach of approving a lot of therapies to actually get them out there. Some, there are a lot of patients who are not going to benefit by those things. But, you know, the, in the end, 80% uh, of childhood acute uh, lymphoblastic leukemia uh, is cured with chemotherapy uh, because of that uh, uh, trial and error stepwise approach that was used. Now, the other issue, just to play devil's advocate, is that, um, you know, MDS is myelodysplastic syndromes. It is many, many, many diseases, as is AML. It's a very heterogeneous disease. And... You know, we have plenty examples of, of quote-unquote loser trials that did very well for some patients, but those patients um, were not like everyone else in the trial. So, you know, one would argue that the, the, um, the, the paradox that we have to deal with is that the diseases we're studying are more and more and more different from with in, in, in subgroups within them, yet we have to have uh, numbers great enough to actually have a statistical meaningful endpoint. So you end up having some kind of homogenization there. Uh, I think that, um, you know, there is, some, there is something to be said for the approach that has uh, kind of uh, been followed in myeloma. These incremental benefits now, when we all started practice, people live for median survival about three to five years with myeloma. And, and now people are living a decade or more. And that's because of the, you know, the development and, you know, new mechanisms of action, but also, you know, uh, further exploration, which in, with, a, you know, a proven mechanisms of action to now where we have, you know, 15, 20 drugs to use that just didn't exist uh, 20 years ago. So I, I, I think that in, in, in MDS, none of the drugs that were approved this year are game changers on a population scale, but are very are meaningful to some patients. And finding ways um, to identify which patients will respond to therapies quicker is important. And that's actually the model in my laboratory, finding the best therapies for the right patients as quickly as possible, because really what we're doing in science is all about moving this quickly to patients and providing value to the folks we take care of in the clinic. Sure, just to... Um let the ladies have the last word. I'll um, mention that drawing together a lot of the themes that the previous three gentlemen have mentioned, I don't necessarily think we have to pick between the be-all, end-all, overall survival trial and then trials that have more modest endpoints that do 
as people have alluded to, have individual incremental benefit for an individual patient. I actually think the heterogeneity in the disease overall that Dr. Savona alluded to is probably one of the most critical things to understand. We still are fairly nascent in our understanding of the biology of all of these syndromes overall. We've made tremendous headway over the past 10 to 15 years, but I think we still have some room to go. And I don't think when I plan my personal MDS portfolio here at Hopkins, I like to have a blend of both of those types of trials where we can. Quite often, the overall survival trials are the ones I look for for the higher risk, higher risk, higher reward. But for the more indolent, lower risk disease, I think that incremental benefit for a chronic condition for these patients who are more advanced in age really also has benefit. And so I try and keep it balanced in that way and think about regulatory approvals that fit the whole umbrella of the myelodysplastic syndromes. Yeah, and I think um, when we think about all these new drugs, and uh, I'm probably not for the sake of time today, I might not go into a lot of details of the of the new agents, but I think from, from a mechanistic point of view, historically with MDS, many of the kind of drugs that we have approved, we generally did not fully understand the mechanism. We probably still continue not to fully understand the mechanism, whether it's hypomethylating agents, whether lenalidomide took several years to kind of... Uh, fully understand and each two, three years we get a new potential mechanism of action. And I wonder um, now that we have so many different agents, how do we go about uh, trying to get all of these different drugs that are being currently tested? We have a large number of phase two and phase three trials that are going forward and you know each sponsor is doing their own large phase three trial and um, there are not many patients uh, to kind of go on to um, all trials, and I think uh, Mike mentioned that there are a lot of probably differences between the patients. I mean, not every higher-risk MDS patient is the same as um, other patients. So how, how do we go about trying to do a more rational approach of designing and integrating these, these uh, trials? I, maybe I can start with David, like citing the experience of the spliceosome inhibitor. You know, I think there was a lot of excitement uh, in terms of like this pathway and, you know, again, we thought that we understood how this works and um, many of us were somewhat, I'm sure you were one of them, David, like we're disappointed with the clinical results with, with, with the, at least initial clinical results with this agent. Um, what, what do you think the connection between the biology and the selection of the drugs and the design of the trials should be uh, to kind of be, the, to have the best outcomes for patients? This is a difficult issue that we're wrestling with. And I think our acute leukemia, you know, many of us also do see patients with acute leukemias and the acute myeloid leukemia experience has illustrated this. So there are some agents like FLT3 inhibitors or IDH1-2 inhibitors that are, that are targeted where maybe it's a little clearer who's the optimal patient for that. But then there's other agents like glasdegib, um, where it isn't as clear. And now that you know, we have a positive overall survival trial with azacitidine plus venetoclax, now do we need to recombine each of those drugs now with azaven or decitabine venetoclax that were previously studied with azacitidine alone in combination? You know, azaven is not yet the standard of care in MDS, but it certainly could be and is, is going to make that more complicated. Many of the drugs that are moving forward in MDS um, 
you know, we, we don't have a specific patient subgroup that uh, is, is going to be a responder. So, you know, Pevanetostat, uh, the TIM3 inhibitor, um, CD47 uh, inhibitors like Megrolimab. There's a few exceptions like the APR246 uh, drug, which is TP53 uh, directed, but other agents also are active in TP53 mutant patients. So, you know, these are, I think, some of the, the, the challenges that we um, are, are wrestling with uh, as, as a field. And you're right, uh, Mary, it's, it's often there's a great story behind why a drug should work, um, and then it turns out not to ha be as efficacious as we thought. And H3B8800 is a good example. Omar Abdelwahab had you know, very encouraging preclinical data. The study we did didn't show you know, any CRs. There were some patients who became transfusion-free. Why is that? Were we studying the wrong, is it the molecule? Is it the dosing schedule? And there's going to be some follow-up uh, on that with some new dose and schedule. But um, so, so, you know, this has happened again and again in our field. Uh, you know, we, we still don't know exactly how hypomethylating agents work um, and why there are these patients who are super responders. I have four or five patients in my practice that are you know, out more than five years uh, and still in CR on these drugs. But what's special about them compared to all the others who didn't respond or, you know, responded for a year and then lost response? We don't have good markers at the moment to help us know uh, who those are going to be. You know, we, we think we know how lenalidomide works. Ben Ebert's work uh, really sorted that out nicely in the Del5Q subset. But we don't know how it works in the non-Del5Q patients when it, when it does. So, um, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's messy. It's messy. Yeah, and just to follow up on the same point, uh, Mikhail, you led um, um, one of the larger trials, basically randomized trial of ASA versus ASA with vorinostat versus ASA with linalidomide. Uh, I think it was the SWAG, um, I believe, 1107 trial, basically. And I think one of, one of the concerns, in addition to the points that David mentioned about you know, the disconnection sometimes between the biology and the efficacy is how good are the physicians about managing patients. And I think one of the issues that came up um, during the analysis and the discussion of these trials, whether sometimes are uh, you know, drugs being discontinued so quickly, are, are we not very good at managing side effects, and how do we do the trials in a way that uh, does not lead to a potentially negative signal when a drug has potential activity? Like, what, what did you learn in, in the context of conduction of this trial and how this experience can be kind of moved to help with, with the, all these trials that are currently happening? It's a great question, Amar. Uh, there were a lot of things I think we learned from that trial. The, when we analyzed the data, we found that um, patients who received combination therapies compared to azomonotherapy were significantly more likely to discontinue therapy because of toxicities, despite the fact that the rates of grade three or higher adverse events actually weren't higher in the combination arms than in the monotherapy, and that they were significantly more likely to undergo non-protocol defined dose modifications. And in real time, this meant that I would get an email from somewhere in America where someone was being treated and with the message, um, you know, my patient had this side effect, so we reduced the dose of the azacitidine and then had another side effect, should I reduce it again? And I would say, wait, 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 you shouldn't have reduced it to start with. That's not what the protocol says. But by that point, the damage had been done. 
put this into context with some work that um, David and I did through the Aplastic Anemia and MDS Foundation, where we looked at reasons why patients stopped therapy. It was a fascinating study because we asked patients and we asked a bunch of healthcare providers. And when we asked, um, when we posed the question, therapy was discontinued because side effects were too severe, doctors were three times more likely than patients to say, yes, that's the reason. And when we drill down to it, um, uh, therapy was, was discontinued because quality of life was suffering from side effects. Again, three times more likely doctors would say yes than patients. So does that mean that patients are looking back towards a therapy with rose-colored glasses? Or does it mean that their doctors were interpreting toxicities in a way that they weren't feeling? or that they didn't think were severe enough to stop a therapy. So put all of this together in a basket now. We have the North American Intergroup S1117 study where combination therapies were discontinued prematurely or dose reduced, um, not by protocol guidelines. And we have a study that says that we as physicians are more likely to blame stopping therapy on toxicities than our patients are. And what that tells me is that we have an opportunity for education with docs and probably have to build into any clinical trial the requirement that before any dose reduction or discontinuation occurs, that a doctor has to check with a medical monitor. And when we did this for the Asian Pevanetostat study, guess what? Patient, they actually stayed on therapies longer. And as a result, there's actually a signal in the higher risk MDS patients that the combination seems to work better than azomonotherapy. Thank you. Amy, um, we have like now several oral agents. We have the IDH inhibitors. We have potentially venetoclas. Um, we have those oral hypomethylating agents. Both of them got approved uh, in the same year after many years of, of work, one for AML and one for MDS. Do you view that we are going probably applies for both AML and MDS. Are you foreseeing a world where we are treating patients with high-risk MDS and older patients with AML with just oral therapies where the patients are just taking pills and coming to the office every few weeks? Is, is that something that's going to be a, a reality in the next, I don't know, 10 years? So I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but I think oral therapies for chronic diseases has long been a holy grail, specifically in MDS. I think AML is a little bit different because of the inherent toxicities and the higher white counts and potential for lysis. But the reality of any therapy we choose for almost any condition is we're trying to extend people's lives with quality. And I think we all know coming to the hospital um, even seeing any of us, pleasant as it might be, is still a decreased healthcare quality of life. And I worry a little bit about the pace at which these oral agents are being approved. They're readily accessible for pretty much everyone. And just because something is a pill does not mean it is not toxic. Some of these have very significant potential side effects that if you've seen them, you can manage proactively and hopefully mitigate some of that toxicity. But I think there's a sincere learning curve. And maybe it is the decade that you suggest that we need to make it a reality. But certainly for all these conditions, we hope these patients can, outside the time of COVID, go on cruises or something that brings them pleasure and taking their oral chemotherapy pills is a goal for that, as long as we can do it in a truly safe fashion with adequate monitoring. 
what do you think, Michael, about about all of this? Do you, do you foresee that um, you worked with several of those oral agents as well? Um, and I know you had um, some nice preclinical data as well. So do, do you think that uh, the direction of uh, MDS uh, care in the future is going to be total oral therapy combinations? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with Dr. Desern. She's usually right, and uh, she's right again here. I mean, obviously, this comes with uh, risk. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's a precedent, though. I mean, oncologists have begun capsidabine to patients um, for who get 5-FU for many years, and, you know, you, you take the pill home with you, and, and it's chemo. It's, it's, not, it's dangerous to take outside of the a direction of your physician. And even then there's sometimes complications that occur that wouldn't occur if you were being watched more closely in the hospital, but these are kind of trade-offs we make. And this is the responsibility of doing these things and knowing your patients, which patients are good ones to treat in this fashion and how to go about doing this. So I, I'm less concerned about that risk. Um, I'm more concerned about the improper application of oral DNMTIs um, based on the approvals this year. CC46 or on your egg or oral azacitidine is a, is a drug that's active. It's clearly shown a survival benefit in a study that randomized patients to placebo or oral azacitidine with an average of only one cycle of consolidation after getting uh, induced with cytotoxic chemotherapy. So, it, you know, the bar is pretty low. Um, there's clearly a survival benefit, but that drug was that, that study was started uh, before all the approvals we had in 2018, which basically changed some of the potential maintenance options you may have, first of all. But more importantly, oral azacitidine, um, because it has to be given over 14 to 21 days um, and not over seven days like parenteral azacitidine, um, because if it's try if you try to reach bioequivalence over seven days, it just doesn't work because of cytidine deaminase. So, you know, because it's given over 40 to 21 days, the methylome is totally changed. An active drug, but not equivalent to parental azacitidine. If the approach with sedaziuridine and uh, azacitidine, which is an ongoing uh, trial right now, if that leads to bioequivalence as sedaziuridine and decitabine did uh, just recently and lead to that approval, that's a different story. But CC46 or oral azacitidine alone is a different drug and should be used in that context. I guess... Um, I'd like to just say one more thing about um, some comments about the other drugs that are in the pipe, pipeline. I think David was absolutely right. We have uh, some very interesting compounds that um, we're not really sure how to use them. And uh, some of those drugs will be approved. But, you know, often uh, it is said about tyrosine kinase inhibitors that there, there's more papers published as a result of the discoveries made 20 years ago with TKIs in our patients who have CML. And I'm not sure if that's true exactly, but that led to a scientific kind of blossoming where in molecular medicine, we know how to do things. We just didn't know how to do all because of those early discoveries that were made and the patients that were actually treated on the first generation of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. I think in the same way, molecular medicine is blowing open how we take care of myeloid disease. Yes, there's targeted agents for sure, but we're also learning about what happens inside a cell when we treat patients. If they get venetoclax, we're actually learning what happens inside the mitochondria to make them less or more likely to respond to venetoclax or continue to respond to venetoclax. 
those are the types of things I think that are really going to push the field forward and help us understand how to intercalate these new drugs uh, into the, the paradigm. We don't have the luxury of designing a, um, uh, you know, a, 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 uh, an org chart for, for MDS is just one line anymore. It's, it's very, very, it's complicated. We're getting to look like the breast cancer uh, diagnostic trees. That's, I think that's well said. So I think this is a, such a great uh, discussion. I think we're running out of time. So I just want to finish by uh, if you, any of you have any last words, basically about how uh, the clinical trial um, space really in MDS should be moving over the, the next uh, few years. Maybe we can start with, with David. I think my colleagues uh, have really uh, summarized things uh, well. And, you know, this is still a, a very challenging group of diseases. And um, you know, we've talked about some of the logistics and, and challenges, but it is also very exciting. There are all sorts of new drugs going on, uh, uh, being developed. I think, you know, we're just learning too about the large number of people who have clonal hematopoiesis and about um, potentially being able to uh, find that before things become uh, more molecularly complex. We don't know what to do with our ship, whatever one wants to call it uh, yet, uh, how to reduce those clones, but maybe that's a early intervention strategy that may, may help in the future. Thank you. Mikael? You know, there are some analogies to the COVID pandemic and where we are right now uh, in an, I don't know when people would be watching this, but we don't have a vaccine yet. So our best strategy against COVID is prevention. And you wonder if our best strategy against MDS, given the fairly active compounds that we have, um, none of which is curative, um, to target CHIP or Archer, some pre-MDS condition and prevent it from ever going into MDS, uh, thereby extending our patients' lives. Thank you. Dr. Dizan? I echo what these gentlemen have said. I think it's an exciting time to really change the natural history of myeloid disorders in general if we can intervene in non-toxic ways earlier for our patients. And the more patients we're able to put on these style of trials where we really understand the disease biology and we monitor toxicity closely, really will advance the field. And I'm certainly looking forward to the next decade or two where we get to do that. Thanks. Michael, you get the last one. Oh, wow. That never happens. <laughs> so I, so I, I think uh, I'll take the opportunity for a, a quad agreement around um, this, the, the concept of clonal metapoiesis. I mean, in our professional lifetimes, this is one of those, you know, once in a decade type, once in a maybe many decade discoveries and what's interesting is we've moved because of this explosion in molecular medicine beyond the molecular epidemiology of this mutation occurs more likely in these people at this age to the point we actually understand some mechanism. The pe people get cancer because they have this because it causes this. And as we learn more about mechanism, and this is where a lot of the fun research is happening, then we can actually start to really be thoughtful about targeting those specific mutations. There are going to be challenges because the more we learn, the more the nuances between different mutations are, are going to become the bear, as those of us who have CHIP clinics now are, are currently experiencing. But I absolutely agree with my colleagues that this disease is too complicated to end in the majority of cases once it's uh, come about. We have to find a way to keep it, keep it, keep it from coming about in the first place. Well, thank you so much. Well said, uh, 
at the end, I'd like to thank you all for participating in, uh, in, in this iteration of, of the MDS talks. And um, I look forward to having you in, in future, uh, future episodes. Uh, this is such a great group. And uh, I think there is so much to talk about uh, in terms of MDS and the new developments that are happening. Thank you so much. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your podcast app, including Apple, Spotify and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and join in the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit VJHemonk.com for the latest updates in the field.